Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And this week, Nate, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Ben Witherington again. What we're going to be airing today is part of an interview that we did with Dr. Witherington earlier this year. We have not aired this yet, so it's going to be exciting. Dr. Witherington received his Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and his Ph.D. from the University of Durham, England. He is a renowned biblical scholar and professor of New Testament studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He's authored around 40 books. Some of those books include What Have They Done With Jesus, The Jesus Quest, The Third Search for the Jew of Nazareth, New Testament History, A Narrative Account, Women, and the Genesis of Christianity, and many others. Some of his blogs are benwitherington.blogspot.com, blog.beliefnet.com slash Bible and Culture, and now patheos, P-A-T-H-E-O-S dot com slash blogs slash Bible and Culture. But if you just go to patheos.com and search for Dr. Witherington, you'll be able to find him. Please visit benwitherington.com for more on Dr. Witherington. Also, visit GodSolutionShow.com for a couple other shows we've done with Dr. Witherington. Again, that's GodSolutionShow.com. He has studied and written on the issue of women in the Bible and a biblical perspective on women, so it will be fun to hear what he has to say today. On a sad note, Dr. Witherington's daughter, Christy Ann Witherington, died a few months ago. Please keep the Witherington family in your prayers as they process this tragic event and as they continue to trust God in the midst of these trials. You could also go to patheos.com, the blog that I mentioned a minute ago, and read several of Dr. Witherington's articles called Good Grief that deal with how to trust God when you're going through hard times. And he is writing those from the perspective of a man that has just lost his daughter. So they are very real, honest, and vulnerable. I hope you'll get a lot out of them. So why this topic? I'm going to start with a few interesting quotes that should give a perspective on why there is this accusation that Christianity is against equality between women and men. We have had that accusation, and I think most Christians have been accused at some point of having an agenda or a bias against women. This is a baseless accusation, but let's hear some of the accusations right from the source. So here are a few anti-Christian feminist quotes that kind of give a good picture of where this issue stands. One says, a feminist who lives the Bible produces, in the thinking of many, an oxymoron. Perhaps clever as rhetoric, the description offers no possibility for existential integrity. After all, if no man can serve two masters, no woman can serve two authorities. A master called scripture and a mistress called feminism. Obviously saying there that it is impossible to be a Christian feminist. I don't believe that's true. Here's another quote that should pique your interest. Let's forget about the mythical Jesus and look for encouragement, solace, and inspiration from real women. 2,000 years of patriarchal rule under the shadow of the cross ought to be enough to turn women toward the feminist salvation of the world. The Bible says that women are created in God's image along with men and that both of them together exhibit the full characteristics of God. That's in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Women are unique wonderful, and created in God's image in a way that no man reflects. Ron and I had a debate in which the feminists argue that there is no such thing as a natural woman and that women were no different than men. I asked, what about the Y chromosome? <laughs> and it was a 
easy response and it brought up an obvious reality that there are differences between men and women. Trying to erase those differences doesn't help anyone. And you know what's interesting, Nate, is in this whole debate, everybody knows that there are some real issues that need to be addressed. There are issues on a societal level, there are issues on a philosophical level, and even a physiological level, and there are issues in the church that need to be addressed. But the key principle here, and I think the issue that nobody really wants to talk about, is not man against woman or how women can liberate themselves from men, but how people can find their identity and the source of their truest identity and being in the person of Jesus Christ and in the reality of knowing God, who is our creator of all of us. I mentioned in the Valentine's Day show that women are beautiful, valuable, and don't need a man to give them worth. And interestingly, shortly after that show, a caller called in accusing us of misogyny. That has got to be the epitome of hypocrisy, and it is illustrative of what we often see. The accusation of misogyny stands regardless of what was just said. If you're a Christian, bingo, you must be misogynistic. You've, you've been labeled, you've been put in the box. And again, I think it illustrates the intensity of the debate. We live in a world where so much of television and film categorizes women as either stupid or sexual objects or both. And rarely do we see films, that's not never, but rarely do we see films and TV shows that really portray women as equals, as equal contributors to society, as equal standing in society, and certainly as equal intellectually in our society. And yet the voice of outcry in those situations is seldom, if ever. And I think it's interesting that we would be criticized for actually trying to defend the integrity of women from a biblical point of view, saying that they're valuable and unique and wonderful in God's eyes. All people are. But to have an accusation like that in the light of those statements is really ironic, isn't it? It sure is. Now, talking about equality, the Bible was the first document that I know of in history that said men and women were equal. And I'll quote from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, stating the biblical perspective that in Christ there is complete equality between men and women. The Bible was also first to teach husbands to love their wives, and not just to love their wives emotionally, but literally to lay down their lives, to lay down their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their ambitions, to lay it all down for their wife. Talk about a good picture of love. Scripture has attributed great roles to women, including political leadership. Remember Deborah? Also, the Bible describes Esther, a national hero, the entire book of Esther is devoted to her and how she saved Israel. Rahab, who was in the lineage of Jesus Christ, was a prostitute and one of the very few people that had the honor of being listed in the so-called Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Let's not forget Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Lydia, the first Christian convert in Europe. The Bible ascribes feminine characteristics to God. Also, in the first century context that a lot of this was being described biblically, Women were not trusted. They were minimally educated for the most part. They were not respected, and they were relegated most often to the home. And in that context, in the context where Josephus, this first century historian, said women were in all things inferior to men, Jesus' attitude was strikingly different. He accepted women. He taught women as he taught other men. 
He loved women. And Luke 8 tells us that women traveled with Jesus and followed Jesus and learned from Jesus just like his disciples did. And many of those women contributed financially to Jesus's ministry. You can see a very dramatic difference between the perspective of the time that was against women and Christ's perspective of equality between men and women. The resurrection accounts in scripture were all attributed to women. The Bible tells us that there were many prominent Greek women in both Thessalonica and Berea. I've been to both of those cities. And that those women were typical of many of the women in the early church that began following Christ because there was equality. Early church history tells us that many women were those that were persecuted and in some cases killed for their faith in Jesus himself. Many accounts in the early church speak of women who boldly stood up for their faith in Jesus as those that testified to the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the gospel itself. So many women became Christians early on because of these Christian perspectives of equality that were truly liberating to them. So why do we have this modern accusation that Christianity is against the equality of women? Well, first of all, Christians have taken hard stances on social issues like abortion. What we can't forget, though, is that the majority of women in this country are pro-life, as are the majority of all Americans no matter where you come down on this issue of abortion, this issue is not one that is a masculine issue. Across the board, there's a majority of pro-lifers in all demographics of life in America. Next, we have different Christian denominational problems. And some denominations have given the rest a very bad name. And we want to be fair in the show and say we understand that there is some things in some isolated cases where things have been said, practices have been had that should not be because they don't measure up to the biblical standard of who a woman is and the value that she has in the church and in her faith and certainly before God. And for that, we would say on behalf of those Christians, we are sorry because women should not have been treated that way. Hmm. The main culprit, though, that I see is a few verses, and I mean just a couple verses in the New Testament that are taken out of context And that is exactly what Dr. Wetherington is going to discuss today. Being an expert in the New Testament and specifically on women in the Bible, he is going to be at a unique advantage to clear some of this up. So welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Wetherington. Glad to be with you. I definitely want to get to the topic of what the Bible says about women and how women were viewed in the early church. Some people make a big deal of the different passages like 1 Corinthians 14 about women being silent and in submission and Ephesians 5:22 through 24 about submission to husbands and 1 Timothy 2:9 through 15 which seems very confusing about teaching having authority over men and salvation through childbearing. So what is the scriptural perspective on women and what's going on in those different passages? Uh, and what are wow. the implications for today? That's a big question. <laughs> That's a big stake to chew all at once, but let's have a go. Let me say first of all that there's no question but that in both 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, Paul is correcting problems. He's not laying down a mandate which is saying women under no circumstances should ever teach or preach to men, period. Rather, they should just shut up and keep making babies at home. That would be a gross misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Corinthians 14, we've got chaos and worship. And here's the thing. These persons in Corinth are mostly Gentiles. And Paul is, in fact, 
just been talking about the time of prophesying and speaking in tongues in the Christian worship service in some Christian home. So that's the context, and context is crucial here. And here's the deal. You're not supposed to be interrupting the prophet when he's speaking. He's already said that earlier in the 1 Corinthians 14. This discussion about women not asking questions comes later in the same passage. And here's the problem. In ancient Greco-Roman prophecy, basically prophets were consulting prophets. So you would climb the mountain to the oracle at Delphi, and you'd ask them questions, questions like, should I marry this man, or should I go to war, or should I buy this property, or will I live a long, healthy life? And then the Pythia, Delphi, would give an ambiguous answer. I mean, here's a famous example. King Agamemnon, the Greek king, goes to the oracle and says, should I fight the war against the Persians? And the response is, if you fight the war against the Persians, a great victory will be won. <laughs> of course, she doesn't say, who's going to win? the great victory. So this is marvelously ambiguous. But the point is that prophets took questions. Now, this is not the biblical tradition of prophecy. In the biblical tradition of prophecy, prophets are not consulting prophets. They don't sort of take Q&A. They simply listen to God and share a late word from God about this subject or that subject. That's how biblical prophets function. The problem is that these women, in this case it seems to be wives, think that one of the things that ought to go on in Christian worship is questioning the prophets, asking questions of the prophets. Paul says to them, no, if you have any questions to ask, then ask after the worship service and ask the man at home, which could be a husband, which could be a brother, whatever. In any case, he doesn't want the Christian worship service interrupted by questions. Now, what else does he say? He says, as in all the churches, women should remain silent and in submission. Now, first of all, silence is what Paul has been commanding throughout this passage of everybody. When a word from God is being spoken, everybody else ought to be quiet. And that includes women with questions. So they're not being singled out as somehow just because they're women and they should be silent. No, we've already had the same command to silence several times earlier in the passage. That's point number one. Secondly, the passage says nothing about them being in submission to men. When you have the juxtaposition of silence and being in submission, they're supposed to be in submission to the teaching to the prophecy, whether it's coming from a woman with her head covered in prophesying or whether it's coming from a man, she's supposed to be silent and learn in the presence of the divine word. And that's the whole point. There's nothing in that passage at all about women being in submission to men. Then when you get to 1 Timothy 2, this is an even more interesting passage. And the context is he's, again, correcting problems. First of all, he corrects the men. He says, I want men to lift up holy hands without grumbling. So he's an equal opportunity corrector of problems caused either by men or women, and he's going to correct both. He corrects the men first, then he corrects the women. He says, I don't want you wearing all this bling in the worship service. Now, that is a dead giveaway. First of all, most ancient women didn't have bling. They didn't have jewels. They didn't have elaborate clothing. So what kind of woman is Paul correcting here? Not just any kind of woman. It's a high-status woman, probably a well-educated woman. It's a woman with some wealth 
who likes to show it off in the worship service. Paul doesn't want anything distracting from worship. Now, one of the things we know about ancient women from the Greco-Roman world is that many of them wore beehive hairdos, and they interlaced precious stones in their hair. Now, picture a nighttime worship service in a room full of hand lamps or hanging lamps, lamp light. A woman walks into that context with a hair full of flashy jewels. Well, she's going to be like a walking disco ball. That's going to distract from the worship service. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says women should wear a head covering because he doesn't want the hair distracting from worship. And that's also why Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says no bling, wear something simple and chaste and nothing provocative at all. But that's not the end of the critique. He goes on to say the following, and this is a literal translation of what the Greek says. I am not now permitting women to teach or usurp authority over men. And then he gives a theological rationale involving Adam and Eve. I'll get to that in just a second. Now, first of all, that verb, I am not now permitting, is a present continual tense verb. And nowhere else in Paul's letters does he ever envision a present continual tense verb having an endless application. So that's why it should be translated, I am not now permitting you to teach. He's limiting these high-status women from teaching now. Why? Because they need to learn before they teach. And again, the issue of submission comes in. They should be quiet, he says, listening to the teaching, and be in submission. It's not about being in submission to men. It's about being in submission to the teaching. More importantly is that second verb, not the verb, I'm not permitting them to teach, but the second verb, which is, nor to usurp authority over the legitimate teachers. Now, that verb, often to neo in the Greek, occurs only once in all of the New Testament. And every time that it occurs in Greek literature, in a corrective context, it always means usurp authority over, which is an illegitimate use of power. It does not mean exercise authority over, which would be a legitimate use of power, okay? So it's correcting a problem. It doesn't rule out a legitimate exercise of authority in some other kind of context at some other kind of time. Finally, there's this whole business about the example of Adam not being deceived, but Eve was deceived. This has to do with the way early Jews read Genesis 1 and 2. And how they read it was as a conglomerate story. If you read Genesis 1, then you read Genesis 2. Let's ask the question, who got the command, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The only person who got that command was Adam. And it was his responsibility to teach Eve exactly what it said and what it meant. Now you will notice in the subsequent story about Eve at the tree, she doesn't seem to have been very well instructed because she says I'm not even supposed to touch the fruit, etc., etc., etc. Well, the command says nothing about that. On top of which, Adam's standing right there by her. Why doesn't he say something or do something in this particular case? So Paul uses the verb deceived. Now that verb refers to a person who has not been adequately taught. Just like these high-status women had not been adequately taught, and they shouldn't start teaching until they had first adequately learned. 
So he's using the example of Eve of what goes wrong when you try to do something or instruct somebody without having learned first. Eve is an example of what happens. You become deceived and confused. And then, of course, there's the famous sentence about childbearing. There are three ways to translate the Greek. Number one, but women will be kept safe through the childbearing. Well, then that would simply be a promise that might reverse the curse on Eve, which was pain and danger in childbearing. That's one possible way to read it. Second way to read the Greek, but women will be saved through the childbearing. There is a definite article in the Greek before the word childbearing. Now, if we ask the question, what childbearing reversed the curse of the fall? Well, there's a ready answer to that. That would be the birth of Jesus from Mary. So it may be that Paul is offering up how Mary obeyed God and was the handmaiden of the Lord and gave birth to the Messiah. Eve, not so much. So the curse is reversed in Mary that came through Eve. The third way to read that would be, and women shall be saved by childbearing. Now, frankly, I don't think Paul believed in justification by grace through childbearing. I think he believed in justification by grace through faith. So I don't think that text has anything to do with, I was saved through baby making. (laughs) It's very unlikely. That's the least likely of the three possible interpretations of that text. Long story short, Those texts do not rule out a properly instructed woman from instructing others, whether they're male or female, from teaching others, from evangelizing others, from being missionaries, from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing in there that rules that out. And there's much elsewhere in Paul's letters and in Acts and elsewhere that suggests that women did just exactly that. Acts 18 says that both Priscilla and Aquila were Paul's co-workers and that they taught the notable apostle, Apollos. Yes, Priscilla taught a man named Apollos, and there's no correction of that whatsoever in Acts 18. In Romans 16, we hear about Andronicus and Junia, who were noteworthy among the apostles. That is, you have a male and female, presumably husband and wife, apostle team. Women could be apostles, women could be deacons, women could be teachers, women could be prophetesses. We could keep going. So, There's plenty of evidence for a variety of roles that women can assume, even just in the Pauline corpus, but elsewhere in the New Testament as well. And those two purple passages, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, don't rule any of that out. Let's just cap that off by dealing briefly with Ephesians 5, 21, 22, and following. Ephesians 5, 21 says that everyone, and that means everyone, should be in submission to, to one another in the body of Christ out of reverence for Christ. That includes men to women, women to men. We're talking about, in Ephesians 5.21, mutual submission within the body of Christ. Paul then illustrates that by using the example of wives and husbands. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the Greek of Ephesians 5.22, in all the early manuscripts, It does not say wives should be submissive to husbands. It simply says wives to husbands. That is, 522 is the first illustration of 521, of mutual submission. 521 is about everybody submitting to everybody else in the body of Christ. 522 gives the example of the wife's 
submission to the husband. And then he turns around and says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now, if that is not submissive, self-sacrificial behavior, I don't know what it is. The example of the husband self-sacrificially loving the wife and giving his life for the wife is a form of submission. It just is. So it is not a gender-specific unilateral submission of women to men. We should all be serving and submitting to one another out of love for Christ. Paul uses the example of a Christian wife and a Christian husband to illustrate how mutual submission works. Thank you so much, Dr. Witherington, for joining us today on The God Solution. My pleasure. We will talk to you again later. God bless. I hope you enjoyed what Dr. Witherington had to say. And again, his website is benwitherington.com. That's benwitherington.com. I hope you'll check that and all of his blogs out as soon as you get a chance. Also, check out some of his books that deal specifically with this issue. Those books, which you can find at Amazon, are Women in the Ministry of Jesus, Women and the Genesis of Christianity, Women in the Earliest Churches, and finally, When a Daughter Dies, Walking the Way of Grace in the Midst of Our Grief. One of the things I find so encouraging, Nate, in this issue is some of the women that I have had indirect encounters with, these women are very influential in their respective fields, and they have really taught me a lot. The first one is Elaine Pagels, who's at Princeton University, very, very wonderful woman who has come out of a background where feminism was so much a part of her life, and now she is actually a Bible scholar teaching at Princeton Seminary who is one of the world's experts on the book of Revelation and the Bible. Very impressive woman, very gracious individual who can really speak to this issue in her own life and the impact that she's had in her own life and the impact that she's had on her students and in the culture in general is really remarkable. Another one is Mary Poplin. Mary was a professor of radical feminism at Berkeley out in California until at the age of about 42, she came to know Jesus Christ as her personal savior. And the change in her was so dramatic and so wonderful. She is now at Claremont Graduate School And as a woman who grew up, lived, ate, and breathed feminism, she is a woman who now rejoices in her role as a believer in Jesus Christ. I would encourage anybody to look up her testimony and enjoy what she has to say about the true beauty of being a woman alive in her faith. And then last, another one who's influenced me a lot is Jennifer Weisman of NASA. Dr. Weisman is part of the Hubble Research Project for NASA, another woman who has overcome tremendous obstacles in her own life as a woman, but found fulfillment, completeness, and a thriving faith in Jesus Christ to get her through the deepest challenges of life. And it wasn't because she was a woman that this realization came about. It was because... She realized that she was God's creature, and that's what really made the difference in her life. So, we come to the end of a great show, discussing some very hard and controversial issues, with the perspective that every woman in this audience and every woman alive on this planet is uniquely made in God's image, with characteristics of God's nature that no man has, and that very valuable and unique and wonderful reality is something that every woman can rejoice in. And I believe that is true feminism. You are so unique. 
And God loves you so much. Please do not let this baseless accusation of Christian misogyny keep you from Jesus. If you haven't yet begun a relationship with him, I would encourage you to. Just like so many women came to Jesus when he walked this earth physically, today I would invite anyone listening to this show to come to him as you are, saying, Jesus, I love you. Please forgive me for my sins. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I put my trust and my faith in you and begin that relationship with him. An open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And as we looked at the evidence today, I hope you would agree that we found that some of these accusations don't stand and we really are left yet again with the perspective that Jesus does have the answers that we are all seeking. I would encourage you to visit First United Methodist Church this morning. They meet on 2917 Aspen Drive. That's 2917 Aspen Drive. And they'll be meeting at 930 and 11. If you do stop by, tell Jeff we said hi. And before we close, I wanted to thank you, Aaron, for being the most amazing woman that I know. I love you, Eliana and Kara, my beautiful daughters. And I hope you grow into the amazing women God made you to be. And happy birthday, Mom. I love you a ton. And my wife, Lauren who is the most remarkable woman I've ever met in my life. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. I